So if we're going to be talking about the fall and salvation of man, or, or all humanity really, we're going to be focusing a lot on Genesis chapter 3. Um, if you're interested and you're listening by podcast and you want to watch a video we just saw, you can search YouTube for the fall of man. It's one of the first videos on there. So if you've been here most Sundays this month, it might seem like we're touching a lot of the same subjects over and over again. And that's actually on purpose. The series is Christianity 101, and we have to build on a right foundation to make sure that what we are building here, and when we start talking about the different things of the faith, that we are building on a firm foundation of biblical truth. The same is true with spiritual things. I mean, we don't, when we try to build with spiritual things, it's not like we're going and building a house on a plot of land. You have to build that foundation. And that's why we, we go through a lot, this a lot. And we refer back to Genesis chapter 3 because everything else in the Bible is really a response to what happened there. And that video is a great example of what was happening in the beginning, and it showed this thing that we call the fall of humanity. But there is good news. The good news of Christianity is that God did not leave us fallen, that God loved us so much that he provided a way for us to be saved. So let's ask his blessing this morning as we study this. Father God, I ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts, you would open our minds, you would open our spirits to receive the truth of your gospel this morning. We're going to go step by step through exactly how you put this plan of salvation into motion. And I would ask, Father, that you would give us attentive ears and open hearts so that we can see your love for your creation throughout the entirety of the biblical story, even including where we are at today. Father, I ask for your help this morning as I present this, and I ask, Lord, that you would just change our hearts and our minds so that we can think and understand this reality we exist in right now through your eyes. Lord, I ask this in your name. Amen. So I want to start this morning by asking a question that the world asks the church today. And that is, what is the big deal about them eating of this tree? Was there something magical about this tree? Was there something poisonous about this tree? Did this tree like reach out and grab them or something? I mean, what what was so bad about them eating from this tree? But if you think about that, and if you look behind the question, the question isn't really worried about a tree. The question isn't really worried about their reaction to it. The question really is, is God so petty that he would condemn an entire race of his creation because of one seemingly small mistake. The answer to that is that when God gave the command, do not eat of that tree, God was speaking to Adam. And what was Adam at that time? We saw it kind of depicted in the movie. Was he merely a human made of flesh? Just simply a slightly higher form of the animals he was surrounded with? No. You see, God created Adam and then Eve in his image, in his likeness. 
God is not a man. God is a spirit. So when he created Adam and Eve in his likeness, he created a spirit that inhabited a physical body. And part of God's image with Adam and Eve was a very close and a very intimate connection with the Holy Spirit. He created that as part of their very nature. In essence, the source of their spiritual life was a direct plug-in to God. And I don't know if you noticed this in the video, but after they both ate of the fruit, the light within them and the light around them dimmed. It's almost like they went from color to black and white. And it was a dramatic representation of the Spirit of God actually leaving them because of their disobedience. The Bible says that their eyes were open, and that's true. But it was because it was the first time they saw the world only through physical eyes. Instead, they had looked at it previously. They'd seen the world through their spiritual eyes and their physical eyes, but now they only use their physical eyes. And you saw the, the, the look of shock on their faces in that video when they were looking at their hands, and that's, that's all they saw was something fleshly. They didn't see anything spiritually anymore. And that was the fruit or the consequence of their actions. See, there was no physical or, or, or there was no physical poison or power in the tree or its fruit. You didn't see them drop dead of poisoning right away. So the consequence of that wasn't immediately physical. The consequence came spiritually. Their spirits were created with that image of God stamped in their beings, and when they lost connection to that source of power, it was like trying to run an electric oven off of a 9-volt battery. That's not even enough to, to power the light inside the oven, much less heat it up to be able to, to perform its function. That was, that's why the consequence of that seemingly minor act of disobedience was so bad, because it grew. It grew within them and their family. You think that Am and Eve, all they did was eat a piece of fruit, and that's, all, that's where it stayed? No. Within one generation... It was taken a bite out of a, traditionally it was an apple, but the Bible doesn't say. But it went from taking that bite in one generation and the next generation, it led to murder. That's how pernicious and how evil sin can be in our life. And that's a consequence of the fall. It wasn't about the fruit. It wasn't about the tree. Ultimately, the fall of humanity happened because of this. Adam and Eve failed to believe God's word was true. The whole rest of the Old Testament is God progressively revealing himself to humanity again and again and putting a plan into place that will eventually allow humanity to exist with him just as they did in the Garden of Eden to be intimately connected with him again. And one of the ways we see this progressive revelation of God putting his salvation plan into action is within something we call dispensations. And we're not going to get too far into that today because that's kind of a college-level nerd thing that I get into maybe, but for how you live your life, it's, it's not... It's not something we're going to get into too much, but dispensational theology or covenantal theology, whichever one you follow, it's just a tool for interpreting the Bible. 
And when we break the Bible down and the Bible history down into dispensations, what it is is a way to understand how God progressively reveals himself again to humanity. You see, Adam and Eve knew God just as creator. That's all he revealed himself to, to them at that time. But in, throughout the next several thousand years of biblical history, God continues to reveal himself in different ways. And it, this tool of dispensational theology or dispensationalism is simply that, it's a tool. It explains why God seemingly several times seems to change what is required of humanity to gain his favor and to live in peace with him. And most of these dispensations are found in the book of Genesis. In each dispensation, you have a condition to be met and then a consequence for failure to meet that condition. The video we watched was the first dispensation, the dispensation of innocence. Adam and Eve were completely innocent, completely clean, and completely pure in their thoughts and actions until they sinned. Prior to that, they only knew what was good and right. They had one condition to remain in God's favor. One condition. Don't eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The consequence for disobedience was death. And we saw that consequence hit them. Adam, as a spiritual being, was disconnected from God when the Holy Spirit left them. And because of their sin, none of their offspring could ever reconnect with God. In essence, they infected all of their future offspring with this terrible disease called sin. And we saw that, again, in one generation. Went from biting a piece of fruit to murder. The fruit of their actions was the complete and utter ruin of the image of God that was stamped into their being. And the consequence, at least in our behavior, we became little better than the animals that existed alongside of us. God then started a process to teach us about the futility of salvation apart from himself. One of the most powerful things you saw in that video was the pre-incarnate Jesus killing an animal to clothe Adam and Eve, making them directly witness the consequence of their rebellion. An animal that, who knows, they could have had conversations with, for all we know. We don't really know how the animals were in the Garden of Eden, but they could have intimately had a relationship with that sheep that they showed. But they got to witness their consequence, letting that animal take the penalty for their sin, and even more so, foreshadowing his death and covering our sin and guilt before God. After the dispensation of innocence was a dispensation of conscience. The condition was that humanity got to do things the way they saw fit, according to their own conscience. We know how that turned out. Again, it only took a few generations. And we found out that human conscience, apart from the influence of God's Holy Spirit, will always choose poorly, always choose selfishly. Humanity became so wicked that God pushed the reset key on the world and wiped out all but Noah and his family in the flood. After the flood receded, came the dispensation of human government. 
Humans got to rule themselves according to government structures that they set up. That didn't last very long either. Because the first thing they did was band together and attempt to repeat Satan's rebellion and build a tower to reach up to dethrone God. God mixed up their languages so they couldn't even talk to each other anymore. And they all scattered along the earth. That explains a variety of skin color and ethnicities we see today. The next dispensation after that was that of promise. That promise given to Abraham that God was going to set a people apart for himself and give them the best land on earth. The dispensation of promise lasted throughout Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and through 400 years of slavery until Moses led the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And they went under the dispensation of the law. The condition under the dispensation of the law is that humanity had to prove themselves worthy by strictly following 613 different laws. And if they failed, they had to offer a ritual sacrifice for them. Every single dispensation up until this point, roughly 4,000 years of human history, failed to change the heart of most people to want to follow God wholeheartedly. After the dispensation of the law, it brings us to our current dispensation we live in today, the dispensation of grace. And what all these previous dispensations failed to address was the central sin involved in the Garden of Eden. That sin that caused all the heartache, all the suffering, all this tragedy that we see in human history was simply that we failed to believe that God's word is true. It's the root of the same sin that we as a species commit today. We fail to understand that what God says is truth. You know, as I was watching the video and I was thinking about it, the serpent's temptation of Eve was very deliberate. Satan wasn't just play, being mischievous in, in dealing with Adam and Eve. This is right after God threw him out of heaven. Satan wanted to lash back at God the best way he could to inflict the maximum heartache to God that he could. He knew he couldn't beat him in a stand-up fight, so he went behind his back and went after his creation. And he stabbed him in his most sensitive area where it would hurt him the most. You know, in the past, we used to say that a man's word was his bond. That's a way of saying that if a man gives his word and breaks it, he really isn't even a man and has a very small amount of personal character and honor. Now multiply that thought to infinity, and you begin to understand God. God's entire being is wrapped up in this idea and this truth that he is holy, perfect, without stain, spot, or blemish. He is absolutely and completely righteous in all of his actions. That's why Satan's attack here was an effort to plunge a knife into that very intimate part of God by attacking his, crea his greatest creation. A creation made in his own perfect image, and that's you and me. That's why Satan made a lie that made us doubt who God is, that made us doubt the veracity of his word. 
The tragic, it's a very tragic truth of church history that God gave us such a perfect plan of salvation through Jesus Christ, but after the death of the apostles and the early church fathers, this perfect plan of salvation given to us through Jesus was rejected for largely 1,500 years. When you look at church history, we get this incredible salvation through Jesus Christ, and we start spreading it throughout the entire world, and all of a sudden we fall back into this homogenation of law and human government. This era was called the Dark Ages, when the light of true Christianity was almost extinguished. Until the year 1517, a German theologian, who was a failure as a priest, so they threw him in a seminary for training future priests, and he's translating the Book of Romans from the Latin Vulgate into his native German, because his students couldn't read the Vulgate yet, so he was translating the Bible into their own language. And prior to this, Martin Luther had done all the religious exercises that the Catholic Church prescribed to him. He went through all the rituals. He had even traveled to Rome, to St. Peter's Church, because the Pope had made an edict that said, if you go up the stone steps of St. Peter's Church on your knees, and these are like 100 steps or something like that, on your knees on this rough marble stair, and you get to the top and you do the whole thing on your knees, all your sins will be forgiven. Well, Martin Luther did it. He tore his knees apart going up that, that huge staircase, but his heart and his mind were still burdened with the sin that he carried. Still felt condemned, still felt there was something missing from his walk with God. That is until this day in 1517, when he started his translation of the book of Romans. He got to chapter 1, verse 17, where it says that the righteous will be justified by faith. To put that in simple English, it simply means that those people who please God will actually believe what he tells them. Luther himself wrote of that moment. He said, when I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Ghost. And the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. And suddenly this highly intelligent, well-educated man, doctorates in theology and Bible and, and languages and everything else, finally understood the Bible for the first time. He saw it as the Word of God. He saw the love of God. He felt it enter his soul like he had never felt it before with all that religious exercise, all that ritual, all that ceremony that was a, the Catholic Church at that time. He saw it all um, as, as useless, and he saw the relationship with God that he needed. A few hundred years later, Charles Wesley wrote of this kind of experience like this in his hymn, And Can It Be? Luther would have said, Long in my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke and the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That great hymn of the Methodist Church became one of the, the guiding principles of the entire Reformation. And you and I are sitting here today because of that. And suddenly, if you read Luther's letters, suddenly verses like John 3, 16 through 20 came into focus in Luther's spirit. And he saw it at the central point 
of the gospel message. Let's take a quick look at that. We see the salvation of humanity. John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And with everything we talked about this morning, I want to look at these verses. And perhaps like Luther, we'll see and understand them in a new light. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, he gave us his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. So let's break this down. In this verse, what is God's action? What's God's action? He gave. He gave us his one and only son. Jesus became our substitute and bore the consequence of our sin. What is our required action? To believe to believe that the word of God is true. Back up 6,000 years, what was the requirement in the Garden of Eden? To believe. Over 6,000 years later, what is the requirement today in this dispensation of grace? To believe. It's never changed. It's always been to believe that the word of God is true. What will it be a billion years from now? To believe. Verse 18 says that whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This word believe is not talking about just an intellectual consent that this might be the truth. If you actually believe what is being said here, it changes everything. It changes your entire spirit. It takes your mind off the things of this world and places it on the things of God. God doesn't give you an excuse for not believing. Jesus himself tells us how to be saved, but then he also tells us the motives behind why so many refuse to believe. Jesus said that so many refuse to believe. He said, this is the verdict, that life has come into the world, but... Men love darkness more than the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. How many people have heard or had somebody ask them, how can a God of love send people to hell? Jesus gives us the solemn answer. People go to hell because they love darkness more than light. 
They chose to believe the lie. The same lie that Satan told Adam is the same lie they are believing today. And the Bible even gives us the motive. Because they love their evil deeds more than they love God. What do I have to give up to come to Christ? What do I have to give up to get into heaven? You have to give up hell. You have to give up hell and all of its pursuits. My answer to the question of how can a God of love send people to hell is this. How can a God of love force you to spend an eternity with Him when you hated Him here on earth? By not believing who He is and all He has done for you. Let's all rise. I'm going to end today by reading a verse from Hebrews chapter 2 that says, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we, will not, we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation. And Father God, I ask that you search each heart and mind that listen to this message today. I ask, Father, that you would reveal those places in our hearts and in our spirits that we think we have locked away from you. Places where we pursue the devil's way and not yours. Places that we have fear and doubt and unbelief and that you kick open those doors, and that you would help us to finally believe you in every way, Lord. That we can come into such a great salvation and escape the wrath that is to come. Lord God, I thank you. I thank you. I know that there may be people here who have never done this, but if you have never accepted Jesus, if you have, have never placed your life in his hands, it's as simple as asking him into your heart right now. Say, Jesus, I have sinned. I know I have sinned. I'm sorry. And I accept you and your sacrifice as payment for my sin. And I choose to follow you now. I turn my life over to you. You don't have to walk up marble stairs on your knees. You just have to do what is even harder, and that is surrender your heart, will, mind, and emotions to Him. Thank you, Jesus. 